Hello everyone, welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Emma Norris and I'm the Deputy Director here. I'm delighted to have you all here for this event on how central government should be organised to deliver levelling up. There's been no shortage of central government attempts to support regional development over the past few decades, but past efforts have often faltered, whether that's uh, lacking scale, coordination, public consent in some situations or oversight. And then those efforts are often superseded by further rounds of reform. Well, this government has clearly made tackling regional inequality a core part of its vision for the country. The levelling up white paper sets out their plans in more detail and proposed several reforms to rewire Whitehall um, to ensure government can deliver uh, regional policy effectively. That includes things like the creation of the Leveling Up Advisory Council, an expert group that's reporting to the Secretary of State, and that's there to provide oversight, challenge and advice to the government on designing and delivering Leveling Up. So we're going to be talking about what progress government's made on implementing the white paper proposals, what difference those structures are going to make, um, and what some of the key challenges this government and any future government is going to face when delivering this kind of cross-cutting policy. Um, and we're also going to talk about whether this could be the end of this constant cycle of policy reinvention in this space. So I'm really delighted to have an absolutely brilliant panel here to talk about this. We've got Andy Haldane, the chair of the Leveling Up Advisory Council and the chief executive of the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts. We've got Dr. Hyatton Sillam, um, CBE, the CEO of the Royal Academy of Engineering and a member of the Leveling Up Advisory Council. Dr. Rebecca McGee, a senior researcher at the Institute for Government and a member of our Leveling Up research team. And then Jill Rutter, who is a senior fellow at IFG and an expert in too many things for me to, to list here in the bio. Um, so we're going to start with some discussion um, amongst the panel, but I'll make sure I leave lots of time for questions. Um, for those joining us online, hello, thank you for joining us. Um, you can submit questions anytime from now using Slido, so please do so, and I'll make sure that I uh, use online questions as well as questions from people in the room. Um, if you're tweeting or using threads, the hashtag that we're using is IFG Leveling Up. Okay. Andy, I'm going to come to you first. Uh, you are the architect of the, of the Leveling Up white paper. We're now 18 months on from its publication. Um, how do you think the Leveling Up policy agenda is going? And tell us about the role of the Leveling Up Advisory Council in all of this. Uh, Emma, thank you. Um, morning, everyone. Uh, thanks to the IFG for hosting me again. Uh, one of the architects rather than the architects. <laughs> Very uh, modest. Um, uh, how's it going? Um, it's a mixed bag. It's a mixed scorecard, isn't it, let's be honest. Uh, I think on the um, debit side, if you ask most people across the UK right now, have you felt the fruits of having been leveled up? They'd say no, or not really, or perhaps most optimistically, not yet. So I think in terms of outcomes on the ground, the majority of those 12 missions we set out in the white paper most people so far would say mm -hmm. they haven't seen much fruit uh, from those as yet. Yeah. Uh, now, there might be one or two places that would have felt the benefits. If you've been the recipient of some levelling up funds, mm -hmm. perhaps you would start to see something. But for the vast majority of people in terms of outcomes, so far, they'd say, so what? Now, perhaps that bar is too high. We always knew, of course, that levelling up would take many years, if not many decades, to make good on. That's why we set missions out to 2030. And I think, I think you look further along the pipeline, earlier in the pipeline, you do see some progress having been made over the last 18 months. When it comes to, I'd say, three features uh, of the framework for levelling up, the long-term framework for levelling up mm -hmm. that the white paper sought to set out. One element of that was the long-term objectives. Those 12 missions I mentioned, Emma, those set out uh, clearly, I hope, and ambitiously in the white paper. They're now being codified in statute in the levelling up bill that's wending its way through the two houses currently uh, in the upper house, hopefully, will get approved uh, early in the autumn. They will hopefully hardwire in that longer-term ambition and give grounds for hope. Secondly, when it comes to decision-making, both centrally and locally, there, too, I think we've seen some progress. Uh, when it comes to central government decision-making, the machinery of government has changed a bit. 
we are now having regular interministerial gatherings to discuss each uh, of the missions and the Leveling Up Advisory Council is being invited along to some of those. We have seen changes, have we not, when it comes to the devolution agenda with the two trailblazer deals for the West Midlands and Greater Manchester and with new mayoral deals coming uh, on stream. As part of those trailblazers, we will move uh, relatively soon into having single financial settlements for those mayoralties, which I think would be a big step forward mm -hmm. given the plethora and proliferation of funding streams with very different criteria uh, right now. And just last week, we had the announcement of the first investment zone for South Yorkshire. I think they hold great promise when it comes to different models of local governance, Emma. That is to say the fusion, the bringing together uh, of central government, local government, business, and anchor institutions such as local universities. So those, for me, are steps forward when it comes to decision-making locally mm -hmm. and uh, centrally. And finally, the third element of the framework where I think there's been some progress is on all matters accountability and transparency-wise. We now have uh, an office for local government, Offlog, not the best name, but nonetheless, <laughs> hopefully a step forward when it comes to scrutiny of local government decision-making. We have the Leveling Up Advisory Council, about which I'm sure we'll have more to say, uh, holding hopefully a critical lens, a constructively critical lens to all matters leveling up. So some action, some progress, more than is given credit for, but nonetheless, when it comes to outcomes on the ground, I think less than the public probably expected. Mm -hmm. and Andy, just before I, I go on to, to the next person, when it comes to outcomes on the ground, do you think that the public have the same understanding of what those outcomes look like as government? I'm thinking, for instance, of, of some of the public. When people are asked, you know, what, do you, what, do you, what does levelling up mean to you? They often highlight things like having more hospitals, greater investment in, in healthcare. Yeah. Is that what you think government means by levelling up? I mean, it's one element of it. Uh, one element of, in this case, the health mission would be that. Mm -hmm. I agree there's absolutely a translation job to be done from the missions which are necessarily quite high level and a bit obtuse in places into what this means on mm -hmm. the ground. That's ultimately, I think, a role, Emma, for local leaders, not just mm -hmm. government, but yeah. local business leaders, local community leaders, which is why that local governance part is so important. So you know, let's take the, um, the investment zone from last week. Mm -hmm. At one level, that's about research and innovation. But at a more local level, it's about the prospect of 8,000 more jobs and 4,000 more houses, yeah. right? And better local transport. That's what it means locally. And landing locally hasn't always happened, but hopefully now needs to. Thank you, Andy. So, Rebecca, Andy's just set out, you know, where things have got to, the kind of progress that's been made, the signs of progress uh, towards the, the missions. Do you think that central government has set itself up in the right way to delivering on levelling up? Yeah, thank you, Emma. Um, so, we're doing a piece of work here at the IFG that uh, is looking at this, and uh, one of the things that we found, obviously lots of other people found, is that reducing regional qualities has been a long-standing aim of success as governments over the past 40 years, but it's just quite intractable and despite uh, attempts to reduce the inequalities they remain stubbornly high and a lot of the agendas have struggled to achieve what they've set out to but we have identified along with others some of the key problems in policy making in this area which the white paper also recognised. Uh, one of them is short-termism and policy churn which Emma you looked at before um, in all change the IFG work. Um, the, the issues of regional qualities is long-standing and very entrenched so they need to be addressed with policies that are delivered consistently over many years um, the international examples we can look to for success as regeneration in barcelona and also east germany where the product of decades of consistent work but in the uk so far the regional policy can be characterized as excessive policy churn and the work i mentioned uh, all change looked at regional governance industrial strategy and adult skills as areas that had particularly high churn, all of which are key in levelling up. So there's a real issue there. The key issues for 
reasons for policy churn are poor institutional memory uh, in the civil service as civil servants move roles, a uh, lack of effective evaluation, which has a compound effect with people moving. Um, so moving around without good evaluation means people are reinventing mm. um, policy uh, policies. Um, then there's also the like incentives of politicians. We have electoral cycles that incentivize people to have much short-term, more short-term goals. Um, so trying to push past that is quite difficult. Um, so the level leveling up fund is an example of one of these where the terms of reference required policies in the first round to be deliverable before 2024. So sort of impacting some of the longer term things in the future. A second key problem is departmental silos. Um, so Whitehall silos are something that we've talked about lots before, um, affect lots of different policy areas, but for these like hefty cross-cutting issues are a real problem. The machinery of government just finds it hard to get to grips with cross-cutting policy problems that often fall between the different gaps between departments. And we've, again, highlighted this before about how different economic levers need to be coordinated um, to deliver stronger economies in less productive places. So, for example, if you improve skills, it doesn't deliver economic growth if it's not matched with uh, policies that bring businesses and jobs to match up with all of those skills. So reasons for departmental silos that we found are that different departments have their own cultures um, and they work differently, making it hard sometimes to work together. The departments are set up with the ministerial priorities in mind, so working for the ministers. Um, so if levelling up is a ministerial priority for Michael Gove and DLUC, then unless there's a strong central impetus, uh, if you're working in another department, uh, without it being a clear government-wide priority, there's less incentive to work together. So those are a couple of the key issues. So a government that's serious about addressing these issues, um, we've looked at some of the elements that you would need. Um, so the first is to acknowledge the need for political drive, which the levelling up agenda does have, or had at the beginning at least, um, from the centre. And if this is going, to, this needs to happen first, really, a lot of the structures I'll talk about in a second, can only harness the political drive, it needs to be there, um, and everything else won't happen automatically. So if you have that, then you need the structures that can translate this impetus into action. So from our work and our research for our paper, uh, we would emphasize the use of good metrics, so the missions, for example, um, and they can to be used to measure progress. So they're of benefit because they can provide clarity which is something that this really needs, like a levelling up agenda sort of became a, a catch-all thing before the missions were introduced. Um, and they can also help to provide external challenge and a consistent focus across government. So the levelling up white paper focused on the missions, uh, which was really helpful. Um, and there are lead departments for the missions, which provides a hook for DLUC, which is really helpful to be able to coordinate across departments. So they're working in that way, but there are 12 missions and they're quite hard to coordinate. Um, previous IFG analysis we did at the time of the white paper found that we found only four of the 12 missions were clear, ambitious, and had appropriate metrics. So it's quite a lot of metrics to be dealing with to have that coordination across government. The other things that we've identified that you need are structures for coordination between local and central, but also across central government. And these you need that element, but the structures can vary depending on the context that you're in. So task forces are a useful tool, and the levelling up task force is really successful as a small and agile body for getting things done. Um, cabinet committees can also work, but they're definitely not a solution on their own, as anyone who's worked with them will know and has told us. Um, but they can be combined with other organisations, such as implementation task forces, um, to provide sort of a network of uh, decision-making and delivery across government. For local to central coordination, um, you make use of structures that bridge between the two. So um, the Cities and Local Growth Unit does that quite well. The levelling up directors that were in the white paper haven't worked out, um, but uh, there's yeah, something there you need a bridge between local and central. And then finally, the government also needs the structures that work to encourage transparency and evidence building through the accountability mechanism. So the levelling up advisory council is one example of that, and the spatial data unit is another one. Um, but I think what's really important is that the external scrutiny that something like the annual report could provide uh, if it was done independently. And also, um, one thing to note is that it's in the, held up with the bill at the moment. So I think currently, once that has Royal Assent, 19, it kicks off a timetable of 19 months after Royal Assent that the first annual report 
will happen, which will take us possibly into over the next election. Mm -hmm. um, so from our research, we'd say that the government has set itself a difficult task. It's a broad policy agenda, um, and it's a lot to, lot to do. Um, but it's got some things right, and there's some things that we think could have, could have gone further, and we'll go into more of that in a bit. Brilliant. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, hi, Tim. Andy and Rebecca have both mentioned uh, the Advisory Council. You're a member of the Advisory Council. Um, what's your experience been mm. as a member of the Council so far, and what kind of contribution has it made to, to driving forward this levelling up agenda? Thanks, Emma. Well, um, I'm going to talk about the experience of working on the levelling up Advisory Council through the lens of research and innovation. I think that's actually a really useful lens because what you see in the white paper is that research and innovation, or R&D in that specific context, has its own mission. And that's a very important hook for driving progress and clear accountability. But actually, then if you step back, you can see that research and innovation touch so many other missions from pride in place to skills to health, productivity. And so um, it's really helpful to have this advisory council that has the freedom and the breadth of expertise to roam more widely across that agenda. Um, so I've been leading some work on behalf of the advisory council, together with Catherine Bennett, another member of the council, who by day leads the high value manufacturing catapult. And uh, the focus of that work has been on how do we make sure that we don't just track the input metric, important as it is, around where is public investment in R&D going, but actually how do we track who is benefiting from the investments that we make as a whole in research and innovation in the UK. And that paper then has, has I think, helped to shift the focus towards prioritising actions that will deliver greater levelling up benefits from our research and innovation agenda in government. And also onto the, to the point that, you know, technological change is impacting every aspect of our lives. I mean, you know, I think following the uh, emergence of generative AI this year, no one has left any doubt. I'm not debating this point to the same extent I was last time, this, this time last year. Um, but it's, it's a really profound point because that means that, you know, what you see is the, the leading edge, those that understand and can, can innovate, uh, understand technologies, emerging technologies and can innovate, are going ever faster and benefiting from that. But those that don't have that very, very leading edge capability are being potentially left behind. And so there's a huge job to do around empowering and building the capacity of that critical mass of places in the UK, uh, people within society, companies that, that aren't um, leading edge innovators, to make sure that we're not just exacerbating inequality, which of course is, would be totally contrary to the aims of, of levelling up. And so the, the work that we've been doing has been focusing on those two areas. I think the fact that we have independence and um, the fact that we have a lot of pre-existing interfaces. So Catherine herself, of course, can tap into the catapult networks, which are distributed across the UK and can be real contributors to the levelling up agenda. Uh, I, through my day job at the Academy, um, can link into the work that we do on engineering economy in place. We've just published a, a new dashboard that enables us to much better interrogate the engineering economy across the UK and how that impacts on GVA and on job creation. And we've got those, those relationships. But we've also got lots of existing relationships to different parts of government. So we work with the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology. We work with the UKRI. We work with the Department for Business and Trade. And so you get a kind of complementarity between the work of the officials, um, the, the interministerial structures, and then our, our ability to kind of roam freely across, across those interfaces. And so that's, I've given you one example of the proactive work that we've done using that uh, set of capabilities. But we're also available, of course, to um, respond to questions that officials and ministers are posing to us. So we were able to input to the investment zones discussion. Um, and we were able to, we're, we're currently helping scope some work on um, how we can better understand the process of innovation, adoption and diffusion. So not, you know, who's creating the next leading edge technology, but how does that get adopted and deployed across industry and the public sector at large, which is recognised as being very important but very poorly understood and could be really, really important in terms of uh, levelling up outcomes. So I think if you sort of step back from all that, what you see is that um, in our first phase of work, the levelling up advisory council has certainly been able to create connections that weren't there before. That's both within, um, between the expert community and government, but also between different parts of government and non-departmental public bodies. And to uh, provide a slightly different lens in terms of insight and expertise that ultimately all gives us the best chance of delivering those levelling up 
objectives which we all want to achieve. And I would just like to say that Andy's leadership to this has been absolutely crucial. Um, so I certainly wouldn't have joined the council if it hadn't been for Andy's being the chair of that council. Um, but hopefully we'll be able to talk a bit more about the relationship between um, the sort of structures and the leadership, which I think is key to delivering value. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, Jill, uh, Heisen's just talked about the advisory council's role in kind of roaming freely across different, different policy areas and different briefs. You've done lots of work on, on net zero here at IFG. I mean, what do you think the levelling up agenda can, can learn from attempts to deliver other big, long-term cross-cutting policies like net zero? So I think it's really interesting that in the levelling up white paper, there's actually a sort of what can we learn from other examples? Can I just say that's a great thing to see in a government white paper. We've actually looked at what we can learn from other areas of policy. It's quite interesting that they pick a number of different institutions that, that they've picked for. And I think... If we look just at levelling up advisory council and the sort of framework around that, the really interesting question is you can have an external body to do one of two things, not entirely separated inevitably. One is to provide additional capability and the sort of things that I was talking about, you know, knowledge, relationships, insights and stuff. And I think that can be really valuable assuming you have a government that is enthusiastic about the agenda. So assuming that you've got a government where the barrier to activity is lack of knowledge, lack of insight, lack of connections, things like that, and is interested in the, so what can we do question. But some of the other institutions, the Treasury didn't need to give fiscal forecasting to the OBR. The Treasury was perfectly capable of giving fiscal forecasting to the OBR. It created the OBR to do something quite different, which is to provide discipline about fiscal forecasting. Indeed, the people who are the fiscal forecasters in the OBR were largely the people who used to be fiscal forecasters in the Treasury. So it wasn't a capability question. Yeah. It was a keeping us on the sort of track discipline. And there, if you look, I think, interestingly, at the sort of climate change committee, I used to sponsor a thing uh, which was killed in the bonfire of the Quangos in 2010 called the Sustainable Development Commission. And the Sustainable Development Commission was, did bits at the margin on holding government to account. We actually, uh, when I first went and ran Sustainable Development in DEFRA, where I owned a lot of ludicrous indicators, which were absolutely impossible to deliver, uh, we actually also did an annual report on government progress, which went into the dire process of collective decision-making, um, which meant we would write something vaguely critical about the performance of a department like the department that's now LUAC, but the, then uh, the Office of the Deputy Prime Minister then became Commissioner of Local Government, we would write something saying perhaps they weren't doing their bit, and then it would go around for collective discussion, and suddenly we discovered that when it came back from a collective discussion, it was, suddenly was doing an extremely good job. So we produced this absolutely pointless, blando report, so we gave that to the Sustainable Development Commission to do. But they weren't on a statutory basis, they made themselves quite unpopular, and they got sort of put on the bonfire of the... Um, bonfire of quangos in 2010 compare that to climate change commission which i think has committee which has i think has done quite a good job in ensuring longevity of the policy not when the initial proponents of the policy were there but when it went into what might have been slightly less fertile territory when you had criticisms it's on a statutory basis it is obliged to produce an annual report on government progress the government doesn't mark its own homework uh, the government is obliged to respond, and actually the legislation sets out the timeframes for response. So the CCC has to produce its assessment on mitigation by the 30th of June. The government has to respond by the 15th of October. Those land in Parliament. Parliament could do a much better job of being vaguely interested in what the CCC says, but, uh, but it's still, at least it gives it the opportunity to do that. So I think it's a really interesting question for the frameworks we're setting up around levelling up of they might be good when you have enthusiasm from the leader, you have a Secretary of State who is very keen on the agenda and has clout, and it's not always a given that the person who runs that department will have mm -hmm. clout. It's still quite a second-order department in government. But is, uh, is the institutional set up robust enough to hold a government to those missions, assuming a new government, if we do get a new government, wants those same definitions of missions. Uh, you know, so will it actually act to give this policy area the longevity 
and as Rebecca says, to sort of prevent the churn that you will almost get because anything which is setting longish term targets. The other bit I think is really interesting is sort of actually saying, where do you go then? Because if you think leveling up isn't going to be done by 2030, notwithstanding all the missions, one of the things that the Climate Change Committee really interestingly does is advise the government on the next set of, I mean, you know, where actually have you made progress? Where could we be more ambitious? Where do you need to sort of redevote? How do you redefine those targets? And I think it's sort of, you know, quite interesting to see how you would fit that in as well. Of course, that's another statutory role for the CCC. So I think it's some quite interesting comparison about whether this, you know, is robust enough to give enough discipline if the focus goes and people get distracted onto other things. We all know that we've got very sort of tough times in public spending and an awful lot of these missions require quite a lot of redirection of public spending. Thank you, Jill. Um, Andy Hyson, I want to come to you both first. Uh, based on the discussion we've just had, we've talked about a few of the structures and the council, the missions and so on. What difference do you think they have made already as structures? And given what Jill's <coughs> just said, is there anything that you would like to change or that you think will need to change structurally over time to ensure that the kind of levelling up arrangements are as robust as possible? Mm. Shall I go first? Yeah, yeah go for it, Andy. Sure. Um, so on those, I mean, I thought Jill's distinction was very helpful, actually. Uh, and truth be told, the main role of the council so far has been in, in Jill's first role, which has been about um, access to different capability, access to different networks and information that might not otherwise exist to inform the thinking on, uh, on policy. Mm -hmm. um, in some cases, that's been immediate policy. Here I can give some excellent examples of, of that on investment zones or on technology or on maths to 18. Mm -hmm. Uh, we also, though, have a longer-term programme of work uh, which will hopefully feed into the machine uh, down the line, uh, including issues around access to private finance. By the way, that's an area where we've been chipping in as well ahead of uh, the Mansion House announcements last week. Um, on the role of London and devolution in London. Uh, on issues uh, around skills. Uh, on issues around the future of devolution. So there's a, a longer-term programme of work as well mm -hmm. that the, uh, the LUAC is, is undertaking to feed into policy, not immediately, but, but down, uh, down the line. It is an open question, uh, genuinely open question, how far the LUAC plays that second role that you'll mentioned, mm -hmm. which is as uh, critical friend, as independent scrutineer of whether the missions are being made good on, mm -hmm. on how the missions might be recalibrated when the time comes. Yeah. Um, the LUAC is, is not a statutory body, and therefore it faces just the risks that, that Jill mentioned, mm -hmm. that, uh, as does the project, that to an extent uh, they're driven uh, by the personalities of the time, the Secretary of State of the time, and the degree of political clout and nows that they have. Um, as I know myself, um, when personalities change, those architectures can change. I've been here several times previously as chair of the Industrial Strategy Council <laughs> until it was abolished. Um, and that was easy because it wasn't on statutory footing. It was playing a scrutiny role, but unless that scrutiny is underpinned in legislation, the scrutiny can quickly be scrapped, and in our case, it was. And that would be an issue for me, I think, looking forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you, yes. Um, so I suppose I can give a little bit of a sort of peek under the bonnet. Um, I got to attend the interministerial group on looking at the R&D mission uh, a little while ago. And honestly, I, I was impressed by two things. I was impressed by the fact that you had double-digit numbers of ministers sitting around the table, properly engaged seriously engaged, um, uh, well briefed, with data. And it's a kind of discussion that in my 20 plus years in this area, I have never personally seen before. Um, so it's always been a bit of a challenge to get that cross government ownership of anything to do with research innovation and simply like us leveling up. Um, so I think you know, that's, that's not a small thing. Um, I agree with your point very much still around the, you know, the qualities of the individual Secretary of State who does that convening. Um, so, you know, that, that's something to bear in mind. The second thing I was impressed by is the amount of 
data that we now have that can underpin decision-making and levelling up. And I think this hasn't had enough celebration, actually. The spatial data unit and the, um, the... It's not just about having the data, it's about being able to utilise it effectively to be able to connect that with policy making. And I have been amazed at the progress made in that area in relation to research innovation. So I think that's really important progress to bank and to acknowledge. The other thing I would say is that in terms of research innovation, there's been this long-running kind of tension within the research innovation community over whether you can really invest on a place-based um, premise without diluting excellence. It's not my favourite discussion, I will happily say, <laughs> but it's nonetheless a discussion I've been party to many times. And the brilliant thing about the mission, well, that's not really up for debate anymore. You know, it's a question of how shall we do this rather than whether we should do it. And that has had an impact in terms of the community arranging itself around a more constructive approach, mm -hmm. I would argue, uh, than, than we've maybe historically adopted. I think that's really important. I'd also say that the, um, the, 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 the LUAC, the Leveling Up Advisory Council, has been able to complement those structures in a couple of useful ways. For example, in saying, yes, it's fantastic, now we have the mission that hardwires in the let's look at where the money's going and, and make it more balanced. But moving that to consider really what, what, what matters is what do people experience in their lives, going back to some of the earlier points, and how can we get smarter at that bit of it? So we've had the opportunity to tilt the discussion that way a bit. And similarly, we are getting in much earlier to discussions that we wouldn't have had a research innovation component to. So the levelling up partnerships we were discussing at our last uh, advisory council meeting, it would have taken much, much longer to connect in people who have real expertise of um, urban regeneration projects that have been anchored by universities or uh, ex people who have specific expertise in some of the sectors that might provide opportunities for the, for the areas that we're looking at for the partnerships. So I think those are all things that matter. And, and in terms of my pleas, my plea would be stick with it. You know, in a way, the detail doesn't matter as much as, as the consistency, the long-termism. And um, then alongside that, what we could probably do more of in the Leveling Up Advisory Council, if we still exist in the future, is to bring that systems approach. Because no matter how you chunk oh. this up, you are always going to need to say, how do you make the whole greater than some of the parts and the sort of systems thinking that we're very used to in engineering is a very, very useful discipline in that respect. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Rebecca, Andy talked about the question mark over whether the Advisory Council is going to play this the scrutiny role or not. I mean, looking at what's happened so far, do you think there are any gaps in the government proposals, structures that we don't have at the moment that we might need to ensure this agenda does as much as it can? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when the white paper first came out, the IFG was uh, congratulatory and welcomed the ambition that it, that it had, um, and especially that it recognised the policy-making problems that I've mentioned before, and the need to do these systems reforms, mm -hmm. um, and that how crucial that is to reducing the risk that levelling up goes the same way as some of the previous attempts. Um, and there's been some good progress. So the missions, I said, have been a really good organising framework uh, with different departments, tasks on them, is that gives that hook that DLUC needs. But uh, some things have, have lost steam, and some of these we've covered already, but the example is the Cabinet Committee that was uh, announced in the white paper and then disappeared, but has become the interministerial group, which sounds like it's working really well, and that's really interesting to hear, but doesn't have that collective decision-making clout that I think you need uh, in this kind of network of decision-making delivery um, that we talked about. Um, and there's options, what options to have something like the implementation task forces were under David Cameron where you mix the like officials and ministers as part of that network as well or to widen the involvement to local leaders and things. So, so a more ambitious programme of how you would use different groups like that, I think. Um, but the other thing that I thought was missing um, was missions having some kind of prioritisation. So having 12 missions uh, is, you know, great breadth of work, but it's quite difficult for departments to understand what is a central government priority and where they should be focusing kind of their policy energy on. Um, and there's also cases of the white paper where we thought it could be more ambitious. So like we've talked about, the powers and responsibilities of the LUAC, or whether that kind of scrutiny role goes to another organisation or, or links with other scrutiny things within central government. Um, but yeah, I think take the annual review is something that's still a stickler that's delivered by DLUC and isn't happening for quite a long time. Um, I think pursuing that 
uh, was something that was really missing, as in like the government can't really be marking its own homework, and it needed to be happening more regularly, or it will be regularly, but sooner. Thanks, Rebecca. Jill, I wanted to ask you about the kind of the broader economic situation. And um, this is obviously an incredibly ambitious agenda. And is it realistic to deliver something as ambitious as tackling regional inequality in a time of such constrained resources? I think it, might say it probably makes it more essential rather than less essential, actually, to do that, because otherwise the sort of differential effects are going to be actually exacerbate regional inequalities. And if you don't actually have that sort of lens there, but it does mean that things like sort of Anything that's regarded as vaguely discretionary, we see that already with the way in which the government proposes to fund the pay settlements, that they won't touch the core service, but they will be funded from departmental budgets. And we all know exactly what that means. You know, it may be capital underspends are redirected as a sort of rather dodgy one-off trick. It means that prevention goes and all of those sort of longer-term things that sit under it uh, are difficult. And actually, I think one of the real benefits that the levelling up advisory council do is actually try to shift a bit of the sort of public narrative away from you know sort of looking at the immediate results I thought it was quite interesting when UK and Changing Europe where I also worked did some focus group works about what did people want they wanted hospitals hospitals were the sort of big sign of what they wanted in levelling up but actually if you really want to do things to level up health inequalities you want to look at you know all those things usually in the bucket of wider determinants of Health. So I think actually it's quite important to have quite a robust sort of look of saying actually through these difficult times, if you're serious about levelling up, what does this mean that you do mm-hmm. as opposed to just doing the sort of, you know, relatively, you know, nothing's easy, but the relatively easy things and how do we still maintain our focus on directing investment to underinvested areas or helping sort of, you know, people catch up where they've suffered from, you know, 40, 50 years of, uh, of uh, built-up inequality. So I think, yeah, it's quite difficult. But it's like in public spending. The more it's a zero-sum game, or perceived as a zero-sum game, as opposed to just sharing a bigger pie, the harder all of these things get. And the temptation is to do that. And we saw a bit of that, I thought, with with Boris Johnson's speech on levelling up when he was determined that levelling up didn't mean redistribution. No one's going to lose out. And that becomes harder and harder when you're in constrained times. Thanks, Jill. I'm going to open up to the audience in just a second, but Andy, one last question to you. Um, The elections come up um, a bit already. I think, at least at a superficial level, it feels like Labour and the Conservatives are, you know, there's a lot of consensus on the need to tackle regional equality, but actually beneath the the bonnet on things like devolution, the kind of policy detail is actually quite different. Uh, Do you think the election poses any risk to the future of levelling up? Just on that, um, I mean, one of my aims uh, when we're putting together that white paper and I couldn't say this quite this uh, overtly, was to try and nurture a competition for virtue among the main parties Mm. on on levelling up. Uh, There wasn't much evidence of that for the first few months, truth be told, but there's much more evidence now. Mm. Uh, I do think we see now uh, the two main parties um, playing a a game of leapfrog on some of the issues. For example, Devo, uh, as a a case in point, that's a kind of very helpful Mm. thing. There are differences in emphasis, but the spirit is very much uh, that even the words might survive a general election, as too might many of the policies. People have spoken about recasting the missions, but not about junking mm-hmm. the missions, and that would be, for me, a big, um, a big, a big step forward. Uh, any party would face the sort of fiscal constraints that you and Jill just mentioned. Uh, and here's, I think, where Emma we need to show a bit more imagination um, in the following sense. We, we made a big play in the white paper of the importance of private finance mm-hmm. to the regeneration of places and to move away from an over-reliance on central government mm-hmm. for the mobilization of finance for regeneration. Mm-hmm. And I think that is still very mm-hmm. much work in progress. Some of the more enlightened and forward-thinking and forward-looking regions are doing that. They are out on the stump seeking to mobilize private finance. Many more need to be, because that, for me, is what reconciles the fiscal arithmetic, or one of the things that does, which is to look to the private. There is buckets of cash swimming around Mm. the planet right now, loads of it, 
more of it needs to be brought to bear in place. The mansion house reforms I mentioned last week were in that spirit, bring more patient, uh, pension fund capital uh, into places as well as into projects. There's very much more money that could be mobilized internationally too, and Richard Harrington's review of FDI is in that spirit. So um, the fiscal finances are tight, but that increases the case for looking to private and overseas sources of financing to make good on the arithmetic. Okay. Thank you, Andy. Okay, it's time for audience questions. Um, can I ask you to put your hand up if you have a question? Um, can I ask that it's a question, not a comment, and that you let us know uh, who you are and where you're from? Okay. I've got one over here. Any more in the room? Thank you, David Robinson of Market News. Uh, a couple of speakers made this reference to the OBR and the way that works out with regard to public finances. Now, one thing there is you've had to have the fiscal rules and the OBR assesses against fiscal rules. You now have the argument that's a mistake to have these slightly infantilized rules and then you measure progress against them. Then extend that to the LUAC leveling up debate. Should you have criteria that are objective with the risk of that simplifying the debate? Should those be set by government? And if they are set by government, you're running the same risk that the government can set very easy to achieve goals. So the homework you're marking is actually against the student's own criteria of what success is. I just wonder which way the speakers were coming out on that debate, because I seem to hear comments pointing both ways. Thank you very much. Great question. One over here. Um, Josh Simmons-Upton from the Scottish National Party. Um, it's just, you mentioned uh, devolution a couple of times and the need to support devolution, which is obviously something that, coming from the Scottish National Party, I wholeheartedly <laughs> support. Um, but the prior to levelling up being a UK-run thing when it was the EU infrastructure funds, the devolved governments in Wales and Scotland had a lot more of a say in where the money was going and how it was being used. And it was a lot more of a collaborative effort between the UK and the devolved governments. Um, and we have had comments from unionist politicians particularly saying that the levelling up money should be used directly and invested o over the heads of the devolved governments to prove the benefits of the union and uh, show that the money is coming from central government from nowhere else, uh, which is an inherent politicization of the process of levelling up, which I'm sure you'd agree is uh, counterintuitive. Um, so my question is, how can um, the advisory committee try and, I guess, dissuade this sort of politicization of leveling up, using it directly in the most effective ways, and bring back uh, devolved government involvement in the allocation and prioritization of leveling up funding? Brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, who wants to take the first question? Should you have objective criteria like the fiscal rules, and who should they be set by? Andy, I'm looking at you. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, on fiscal rules, fiscal rules, good. Mm. Current specification, specification of UK fiscal rules, not good. Um, so it all depends upon how you specify them. Um, so I'm all for them, mm. as long as they're specified well. Otherwise, I'm not for them. Um, uh, and currently, ours aren't specified as, as, as I would wish. Um, when it comes to, to LUAC rules, same principles apply, I think. Rule bits, no rule, as long as it's well specified. Mm -hmm. uh, I think some of, the, some of the missions are ambitious and clear, uh, and some are a touch less ambitious and, and, and clear. I, I, you can see by the lines in my face how much effort was put into trying to get those into the right place and didn't always get to exactly the right place. Um, do I think they should be set by government? I do. Uh, because they're ultimately, um, they ought to reflect the views of, of, of citizens, of the people. Same is true of the inflation target. But should they be subject to serious and rigorous parliamentary and beyond parliamentary scrutiny? Yes, they absolutely should. And I would say not just in both houses, but actually uh, around the regions as well, perhaps using citizens' assemblies. So on that... Um, it's a qualified, yes, with the important qualifications that I, that I mentioned. And just on, to Josh's point on, on, on DAs, I mean, I think one of the, the benefits 
uh, Josh, of uh, ultimately, at least in the first instance with West Midlands and Greater Manchester, moving to a single financial settlement, is that that would give much more discretion to local leaders and local actors in deciding where monies, uh, where, where monies go. Uh, and for me, that more collaborative, what you call a collaborative approach, or certainly local focused approach, makes lots of sense, whether that's uh, Scotland, Wales, or uh, different parts of, of England. Thanks, Andy. Jill, did you want to come in on the fiscal rules question? I think it's really interesting, because I think when you look at the, uh, at the missions, I have to say I like missions as a sort of way of doing things, because I think you know, it sort of, yeah, focuses your eyes on the prize as opposed to whatever. But they're also quite an interesting mix. And I go back to sort of David Cameron's critique of PSAs. It was unrealistic for the government to be targeting all these outcomes. And he would look at outputs. And actually, they're a bit of a mix of outcomes, outputs. And some of the things you think are sort of, you know, like well-being is sort of like a meta outcome of if we deliver all of these, we'll probably close some of the well-being gaps and things like that. So I think, I think they're a bit of a work in progress. So I think what you want is, I think you want various things. One of the things is the 2030 horizon means you do need sort of milestones, whatever. I remember when I was in DEFRA monitoring our PSAs, we used to have these delivery plans which we produced every quarter which said red, 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 red. And then miraculously in the last quarter when we were supposed to deliver it, sometime when nobody would be in their current job, uh, suddenly turned green with absolutely no underlying sort of theory of change or what happened between, you know, you know, quarter minus one and the final one to do it. So I think it's quite important. We come back to that on climate change where it, you know, the government was criticised for not producing sort of clear trajectories and also a sort of rationale of why, and I think that's part of the transparency that's important, why this as opposed to lots of the other specifications you'd have. What is our theory about why these things come together and are the critical things we're focusing on? And the more you do that, the more you can actually have a proper conversation with people, with you know, devolved leaders who may have a slightly different view about actually what does that look like in their place and why do they not accept this sort of you know, specification of what levelling up should look like as the most relevant one to where they are. And I think that's really, really quite important. I mean, on the sort of you know, battles over shared prosperity and who gets to control it and muscular unionism versus devolution, I think actually the sort of interesting bit I thought was the way in which the government did seem to be cooperating a bit better with the devolved governments. We know there's a bit of a battle there on free ports and think, you know, whatever you think of free ports and been parted lots of things saying free ports are actually fundamentally mostly about diversion rather than, uh, rather than increase, but anyway, not a necessarily best BFM. But, you know, there does seem to be a more collaborative approach there. And what I think you'd want to see is actually a bit more of a sort of, you know, collaborative thing, though I know the government finds you know, collaborating with the current government in Scotland quite difficult. Thanks, Jill. Um, hi, so I wondered about you coming in on the question of how the advisory council can dissuade the kind of politicisation of levelling up. Well, I think, you know, it's, it's an inherently a political body. And so everything we are doing is based around what's going to deliver you the best outcome based on the expertise we have across that group. And so that's a really nice compliment. And, you know, we have currently a Secretary of State who's immensely engaged in that dialogue and who will happily reference all sorts of politicians and people in different roles um, that, that don't sort of... It's, it's not... It's not the, the nature of the dialogue is not party political in any way or, you know, central government versus devolved government. I do think that, you know, that there is... There's sort of two, two, two things that, that jump to mind when I think about that dynamic from, from, from my vantage point. And one is that um, sometimes, and it's not, it's not guaranteed, but sometimes it's actually easier to get a more collaborative and you know, aligned approach uh, to invest uh, when you're investing locally than it is to do when you're trying to do that across Whitehall, for example. So if you look at the Innovation Accelerator programme that um, we have in mm. Glasgow, Greater Manchester and West Midlands, it's a, it's a good way to try to practice cutting through all these different sort of silos and hierarchies and say, all right, how do we, how do we pull on all the levers simultaneously to get the best possible outcome for our collective investment? And so we're not going to get that perfect each time, but it's really, really good to have those proof points that we can do this and we can do it in a way where everybody feels good about it. The other side of it, I would say, is I think when it comes to understanding something like 
you know, how should technology factor into decision making at local, devolved, um, central government level, we need to recognise that there's probably some capacity building and collaboration mm. to do across that. But at the moment, I don't think it's reasonable to expect uh, certainly local government, maybe devolved government is in a different position, to be able to access the breadth of expertise that it needs to be able to integrate these kind of very fundamentally disruptive factors into their strategy and implementation. So I think there's, there's a bit more collaboration that we could probably support on that front. Thank you. I want to take a few questions. Um, my first question from the audience is for you, Rebecca. Uh, so uh, <laughs> Andy mentioned um, citizens' assemblies, and one of the questions that's coming through from the audience is about citizen engagement in all yeah. of this. So uh, what do you think the role of, of citizen engagement is in, in levelling up? I mean, I think it's a, a fantastic uh, way to involve citizens. Full disclosure, I've worked on citizens' assemblies before, so it's a passion project of mine. But, yeah, it really opens up opportunities. I mean, citizens' assemblies don't always have to be national, they can be regional, I think in this case there's definitely a case for doing something regional and getting at the heart of like what the knotty issues are that people want, um, looking at things from a, a place-based perspective. Citizen assemblies and deliberative engagement are really good ways of uh, understanding what people want, but also the trade-offs that they're willing to make. So for example, the uh, Climate uh, Cork Climate Assembly UK that I worked on a couple of years ago uh, was getting at how you reach net zero by 2050 and those are some really tricky trade-offs and people were able to get there um, so I think it, it yeah, opens that stuff up to some really interesting um, interesting models of engagement there that I think could really help to supplement local decision making and feed into sort of national objectives as well so would be very interested. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Heisen, I wanted to come back to you on a, on a kind of related point, um, which is around building consensus. You've talked quite a lot about having an impressive, impressive array of people in the room, this being an agenda that's already bringing different groups together. How do you go about building consensus to you know, develop long-term policy, policy initiatives and to make sure that you know, the impact is as long-term as possible? You make sure you have a great chair. <laughs> um, the, I think because, because the group is comprised, comprised of people who have quite different expertise sets. We have all have our own, you know, expert community that we dock into, and we all have our own um, areas where we feel we can add value. So what you tend to see is is people taking a lead on a particular topic, able to draw on the, the, the kind of multidisciplinarity of the group that we have. But it's quite a flexible approach, and you know we can bring in expertise from beyond the LUAC as well. So I think it should be seen as an augmentation mm. of the existing structures. And the main thing is that we've got you know, the mandate to, 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 um, to try to sort of autonomously identify where we feel we can make most difference. And then there is someone listening to it at the end of it. So actually within the LUAC, consensus building isn't really uh, an issue. Oh, well, I say, mm. It hasn't been to date. Maybe, maybe the next meeting is going to be filled with very contentious <laughs> topics. But so far, I think there's just a general energy around how do we bring to bear the, the capabilities that we have to make stuff better. Thank you, Jill. Did you? Want I to did, yeah, in? I just. I think it's really good. I mean, we see this with advisory councils. It's always an interesting question: Do they get their own research budgets or <laughs> not? And can they sort of do that? And I think it's really good to have a research budget that allows you to commission research because quite often you know you don't aren't able to do that and I think that really hamstrings yeah. the body so I think it's really really good to do that but I think one of the things that's really interesting on some of these is the uh, linkages into potential for experimentation and local mm -hmm. difference because there are some things where you know we know what to do and some things in the you know missions where it's basically just you know we're going to change this from this to this and that's a sort of relatively easy sort of almost administrative task but others where we really don't know what interventions are going to be maximally effective and I think that's really interesting there to be able to sort of link into things like the local economic growth what work center and things like mm -hmm. and actually try and sort of actually experiment admit that place is going to do things differently and we're really interested in what the learnings are from what works somewhere and what doesn't work elsewhere so I think it'd be very good if you know we could have some sort of sense of controlled experimentation and actually I think it's quite interesting you know I think you do want some consensus but I think you also do want a degree of competition to actually get people getting some sort of interesting ideas out there and having a look and seeing you know who's got the best sort of ways of doing things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just on that point, on Jill's point, um, I completely agree 
uh, Jill. And, and uh, in a way, the way the Diva deals are set up enables that. Mm-hmm. Because there isn't a sort of set package, there isn't a sort of fixed menu. You go and you argue it place by place yeah. or case by case, and that gives you the requisite variation that allows mm-hmm. experimentation and, and learning from that experimentation. Currently, we haven't really got a vehicle standing arm's length that can monitor and evaluate that experimentation. Uh, what works local growth, perhaps? Actually, in the white paper, I forget which page, probably about 274 or something, <laughs> in a footnote, probably, uh, was a, a boat that was floated, was that we set up the equivalent of the EEF, Education Endowment mm. Foundation, yeah. for leveling up. Mm which would be charged overtly with this task yeah. of looking at experimentation in place and learning from experimentation in yeah. place. I still think that is a... Um, I, th- I think the big difference between the What Works Economic Growth Centre and the education just money that Michael Gove gave the EEF a huge endowment of money. Yes. It can therefore commission its own things, uh, whereas local economic growth is one of the What Works Centres that has to live hand-to-mouth. Yes. Sure, Henry Overman will be happy to have his budget you know, multiplied by 10 or whatever. Andy, a couple of other questions that I wanted to pick out from our, our online audience for you. Um, something that's coming up a lot is that we've, we've talked a lot about central government structures, um, less about local institutions. And particularly, one person asked whether actually reform is needed to the, what they describe as the patchwork of local and mid, middle-tier governance in the country. Um, and then... Another question on, this is a classic, should the Treasury be split into with spending control vested in an Office of Management and Budget accountable to the PM and tasked with delivering levelling up? Happy to take the first one of those, Emma. Um, <laughs> um, I'll leave you the, the, the second. Uh, the, the, uh, the, I mean, on the first, yes. I mean, it's, uh, uh, and it has been for at least 100 years. Uh, a patchwork quilt and one that's hard to fathom. Um, uh, I, I'm not one, having looked through the history books, attempts to dictate from on high how you get from where we are to a, a more unified infrastructure, a, a doomed to failure, I think. So that this occurs through a process of incentives, and the DEVO framework they put in the white paper was intended to provide incentives to move towards a simplified, unified, with a mayor on top of the cake mm-hmm. model, but wasn't going to require that of all places. As it is, we're already saying there's a, those incentives are kicking in. And a number of places that haven't always been the best of friends starting to move towards a model like that. I mean, Tyneside being a case in point. I mean, the idea that Sunderland, I'm from Sunderland, and Newcastle, would get together <laughs> and cooperate and bring single, you know, to, I never thought it would happen in my lifetime, but now it will in May next year. And that's all about incentives, that doing so gives you extra powers and extra monies mm-hmm. and a chance to pull a region together, which is kind of fantastic, fantastic news. So yes, it needs some rationalizing. I think that is now happening, albeit in a voluntary fashion, market-driven uh, fashion. We still have, though, Emma, uh, a chronic deficit of capacity and capability at the local level. After years of hollowing out, mm-hmm. there had to be a reflow of resources uh, back to local institutions to make good on these extra responsibilities. I hope that will happen as well. Thank you. Rebecca, did you want to come in on the local institutions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, absolutely, devolution is a way of... Uh, a a central tool for reducing these inequalities and it's what the government has committed to and we committed to and uh, Labour as well. Um, But in defence of uh, a panel on looking at the centre and uh, our report that we'll be doing soon, um, there is still this really important coordination role for the centre. So as you said, devolution and further devolution is really important, but if the centre is the one doing the funding and the funding model is is siloed, then all you're going to be doing is replicating those silos in local government. So you can do so much with devolution, but if your funding model isn't coordinated, you're reproducing some of those issues. So there's definitely this need for a look at the structures in the centre as well. Thank you. Jill, hi. So who wants to do splitting the treasury? (laughs) Uh, So I think this is a prime area where splitting the treasury would be absolutely counterproductive. Because actually, I mean, the Treasury claims that it's the UK's economic and finance department. Actually, what you want 
is the sort of economic opportunity of levelling up, you know, galvanised by the finance function, recognising that in the way it sort of distributes funds. So actually, I think you want the two sides of the Treasury brain, to which I know people in IFG do a lot of work on what is the Treasury brain. But if you have the two halves of the Treasury brain come together, I think that's quite powerful. And actually, I think it's really interesting uh, from all the work we've done about the failure over years and years and years of decentralisation. It was really only when George Osborne and the Treasury decided to do something mm. serious about it and put some money behind it that you actually got, yep. you shifted the dial <clears throat> on decentralisation. Lots and lots of attempts from whatever the department based somewhere around Marsham Street or, you know, Brassington Place or wherever it was, you know, wanted to do, never moved the dial. It was when the Treasury got behind it, it moved the dial. Not just having the Treasury as it is isn't, an, isn't necessary. I mean, it is... It's, you know, is it, necessary for, it is necessary for success. It doesn't mean that the Treasury does it, but I do think this is an area where actually having a sort of much more narrow sort of financy Treasury and an economics department over there would actually be positively unhelpful. Thank you. Did you want to come in on that? I'm extremely happy to defer to the wisdom of my colleagues on this topic. Thank you. <laughs> So, I mean, we're at midday, so I think I'm going to have to draw this to a close, sadly. Um, thank you so much to the audience for fantastic questions, both in person and online. And thank you to our brilliant panel for all approaching the conversation with such a spirit of openness and interestingness. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>